Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Have you looked at your credit card statement recently and studied the fine print and ever wondered what was in it? Well, most of us don't. And I'm beginning to think we, I'm beginning to think we should because the, what's happening with credit card fine print really is a microcosm of what's happening in our entire financial economy. And what's in that fine print may not be very good for you. Here's the big issue. A slew of financial crises that uh, stretch all the way back to the Great Depression have been exploited to erect a financial regulator regulatory system that has vastly expanded federal regulatory power. Uh, the irony is that these crises were largely caused or at least exacerbated by poorly designed government regulation. And worse, the, the left is increasingly using this regulatory leverage over the financial system to pursue its wealth redistribution strategies and, and to enrich favored constituencies. What's developed is an unholy alliance of megabanks and trench special interests that take advantage of our system of opaque and complex regulation. Simply put, the systems being used to advance the left's agenda and as one of my guests will point out, maybe other agendas as well, uh, whether it's the culture wars or advance abroad and uh, controversial climate change agenda, and a host of other things like engineering a central bank digital currency system, which would affect give us uh, or, or, or put the Federal Reserve in, uh, over oversight over all of our individual spending. Um, this is a vastly complicated area, hard to boil it down into something that, that's actual for us, but we need, to, we need to understand it. And to help me do that are two wonderful guys that we've had on the show before, Norbert Michel and Chris Iacovella. And Chris is the president of the American Securities Association, and you can find all of his extensive and interesting biographical information on the ASA website. And uh, Norbert is the... Uh, You've got a big a title. You're title the director of the Cato Institute <laughs> Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. And um, it's another big job. He's been writing extensively in central bank digital currencies and other related topics. And um, when Norbert and I were talking before the show, he said, Bill, you, you've got your opening wrong. And I said, okay, let's go from there. <laughs> and I... I, I wasn't so harsh, but okay. well, you're uh, not a harsh guy. I, but no, you're, you're no, soft-spoken, but you're. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I try. Nobody sees it coming. I um, I, I just wouldn't let the right off the hook. Uh, the the right uh, is especially on the culture war stuff. There are some in the right who want to use government in in much the same way that those on the left do, but maybe for a different purpose, maybe for an opposite purpose. Uh, and then in financial markets as well, we see it a lot. You know, this is um, the Republicans and Democrats alike are a hundred percent willing to use more government backing uh, behind financial markets for a variety of reasons. But the larger point is still holds is that they've used the the complex regulatory regulatory system to oh, advance yeah. an agenda that the rest of us don't really see. Yes, I I don't dispute that at all. 
And Chris, you see this all the time with the SEC and with uh, what they're doing. This, this, by the way, this must be the SEC right here trying to... <laughs> okay, we'll let that go. Go ahead, Chris. Yes, I, so I couldn't agree more about the fact that each one of these crises is, is generally an outgrowth of the idea that we're going to solve for the next crisis because of the past crisis with more regulation. What's happened in reality is the administrative state continues to grow. It gets bigger and bigger. It puts on more and more regulation, which stifles competition, which means that we have less choice as consumers, and it redirects money, shareholder money in many cases, of private companies to a professional class of elites in the Acela corridor that do consulting, that do legal work, that uh, you know do auditing. And so we've had Sarbanes-Oxley, which was supposed to stop bad financial statements from coming out. Then we have the housing crisis, which was precipitated by everybody needs to own a house and government interference and housing finance. Uh, and so then we backstop the financial system during the great financial crisis. But then lo and behold, we're told, don't worry, Dodd-Frank is going to come around. It's going to be perfect. That will stop everything else. We've created this amorphous entity called the, the FSOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Council. That will stop everything because they will identify all the risks out there. Well, then we get to 2020. We have a once-in-a-generation pandemic. What happens? The Fed jumps in, saves the entire financial system, buys securities, buys bonds, does things that's not, that's not in its mandate. It should never have been buying ETFs with corporate securities in there. Uh, but they did. And so you have to ask yourself, why do you have all of this regulation that stacks up and costs more and more and more money and siphons money out of the real economy and sends it to the service economy of this professional class? When, when push comes to shove, and we saw it again this year in 2023, the Fed will bail out the system. So it's a waste of money, a lot of these rules, when we always are going to have the Fed pump liquidity and backstop the banking and financial system. And so I think one of the things that, that I, we should explore is, you know, why does this keep happening? Is this useful for our society? And while this is going on, the administrative state continues to, to expand into it deeper and deeper issues. And the, one of the reasons that they missed the 23 uh, failures of Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and what we have with the regional crisis is, and Norbert will, we can expound on the on the capital rules, but the FSOCs, two previous financial stability. FSOC means financial. What that stability means? Stability oversight council. Stability oversight council, yeah. and that was created with Dodd Frank, That's and right. that was supposed to oversee all this from Olympian Heights and prevent any bad things ever happening happening again. Keep they, everything stable. And they produce a report every year on the <laughs> risks to the financial system and to our economy. And for the last three years, the main risks were crypto and climate yeah. and non-bank entities, I, meaning hedge funds, and, and that they would propose a huge risk to the economy. They didn't bother to look at their own institution and say, if we raise interest rates 500 basis points over the course of 12 months, what impact might that have on the market risk of treasury securities that are required to be held by banks as capital? 
that would seem to me to be a legitimate risk to the system. Maybe. Jump in, <laughs> Norbert. No, it, Chris is 100% correct here. I mean, I've, I've witnessed, I'll go a little bit further back on the history before I say a little more about the capital requirements. But, um, you know, you can, go, you can go back to the 1890s and you can see government crises that exacerbated the financial markets and actually led to the creation of the Fed. Um, the 1930s, people you're, were afraid. You're right, though. I dated it from the Great Depression. It really did start. I mean, oh, yeah, way before. we've been having these yeah. crises forever. For sure. Yeah. Um, and then during the Depression, uh, one of the things that caused two of the, I'm sorry, two of the things that caused the, the primary banking crisis uh, was a prohibition on banking, uh, branch banking, I'm sorry, which was a, a small bank thing. And everybody was afraid that Roosevelt was going to go off the gold standard. So they took all their money out like that and and then he did <laughs> and, those, and then we got the fdic and then in the 60s we gave regulators the ability to stop anything in the banking sector that was an unsafe and unsound practice as they defined it that didn't work in 91 we we got rid of the interest rate price controls and we gave them prompt corrective action and that was supposed to be it right now they have prompt corrective action at the fdic so they can stop anything from happening bad right away. Let's, let's move from policy to personal. Mm -hmm. Who are these regulators? Who are these Olympian people who are supposed to be able to be all seeing? I mean, they're government bureaucrats, right? They're uh, GS-15. Almost they're, entirely, yeah. What's their background? Yeah. Uh, a lot of lawyers, a lot of economists. Have they ever worked in, a, in an investment bank or a commercial bank or a finance company? Oh, I'm sure some may have, but I mean, a lot of not them, a almost. lot of them. I've know these guys. Nobody's worked in the real world. Well, I don't want to say, I don't want to say <laughs> not one single one, but, well, I'm just, but most of them, yes, yes, I am. but most of them are not. Most of them are not coming uh, out of the industry. But the some, number some of people do, who've do. worked in the industry that go into the, <laughs> go into that regulatory world, I think is probably, you can probably name them on one hand. And, and yeah, and not as an examiner, you know, maybe as higher up. Um, well, examiners but, tend to have some background. Um, no, not even the examiners. I, I mean, I, I don't. I think it depends. I mean, I've known a couple. I, I can't say that I know all of them, but I don't think it's a norm. I but, think but, it's typically but the, a lawyer. But the larger point I want to make is when Elizabeth Warren writes, and she did just after the Silicon Valley thing in March, she said, uh, "Economic Growth Act." I think that was something that changed some technical parts of Dodd Frank. It did. That was and they said it was. That the, it caused the demise of Silicon Valley Bank, and it was a direct result of leaders in Washington weakening the financial rules. Which is ludicrous. She did say that, and, and others have said that, and it's completely false. But every time we hear, a, we see a headline, we ought to be thinking, okay, well, they want to give all this power to these people. Who are these powers? What do they really know? And well, can the people in FSOC really tell us? And I, I, I would argue that no matter who they are, they can't tell us. I would accept that argument. You know, I think you're a really smart guy. Chris, you're a really smart guy. I'm a really smart guy. I don't think if any one of us were made head of the Federal Reserve, we'd have any, uh, you know, omnipotent powers to, to steer. Right. You know, it, it's it's a badly designed system. Yes. But, Bill, you're, you're getting to the main point, which is... I'm trying to. <laughs> you're, you are, but you're, you're zooming right over the target, which is that each crisis has these folks go to Congress and ask for more power. Mm -hmm. We could have stopped it if only we had and, the authority to do this. Yeah. Or, you know, this was deregulatory, and that's why Silicon Bank went down. No, that's not why. Silicon Valley Bank invested in long-duration assets, and when rates went up, 
the prices went down significantly for 60% as of October of last year on some of those bonds. Okay, so that was bad risk management, that was bad investing, and that was significant amount of risk taking that the San Francisco Fed completely ignored. Yep. Why? Because it had a climate change agenda that it was trying to jam through the financial system. And but for Senator Toomey raising awareness about the San Francisco Fed moving in this direction, it wouldn't have been even been an issue in Congress. So, and, and it's documented that they knew about the risks at SVB. I mean, they, they absolutely knew that there was an, there was an unhedged, unhedged interest rate risk exposure there. And they, they did not stop it. And they absolutely, beyond the shadow of a doubt, had the authority to stop it. 100%. They did have the authority. No doubt, 100%. <clears throat> but they ignored it or they didn't see it? They were mitigating it. They were in the process of mitigating it for a couple of years. Oh. For, or, or at least a year, yeah. Uh, this is the Bill report Walton didn't show. quite make it to the top. Okay, well, let me. This is the <laughs> Bill Walton show, and I'm here with Chris Acovella and, and Norbert Michelle. We're talking all things financial and, and, and who really are these regulators that uh, have so much power over the economy. And if you're listening or watching, we'd appreciate it if you go on whatever platform you're on and ask us some questions you have as we're uh, talking about this. And uh, we won't be able to get back to you in real time, but we will get back to you in the next show and like to have you engage in this dialogue. So the regulatory regulators saw what was happening or could have seen they didn't do anything about it. Yeah, that's true. But and, and I think uh, I think part of it is uh, I'm not disagreeing with Chris, but I think another part of it is this this idea of regulating towards stability. So if you're going to regulate towards stability, you don't go into a two hundred billion dollar bank and shut it down. You don't go into a $200 billion bank and tell them to divest their loan portfolio or to divest their treasury portfolio or their MBS portfolio, you know, over the next six months or whatever it is, because that's not stable. You give them time to mitigate this and you work with them and that's what happens. So I, I think that is part of the core problem there. Um, and, and, and the other piece is the capital requirements. We have no idea what market-based capital requirements would look like for the financial sector especially banking, um, because it's all by rule. It, it, we, we don't know if shareholders and customers and investors would rather a higher number, a lower number, uh, more disclosures of different items than what we have. I mean, it's completely regulated to the T. Um, and, you know, that's another, I kind of bounced off of that, but um, Paul Volcker, uh, may he rest in peace, uh, he really is the impetus behind the Basel capital requirements being implemented in the U.S. Mm -hmm. They had the Mexican crisis that the Fed tried to fix when he was there, and one of the ways they tried to deal with We're that was through... We're going in the world, Basel requirements or what? Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Basel capital requirements. So all the capital rules, the federal regulators decided that they would use the Basel rules. Basel is the, the sort of like the international, a bank bunch of, of international A bunch of gnomes in Switzerland? Yes. Okay. So they all got together and came up with a risk-based set of rules. Basel. Okay. Prior to the 80s, believe it or not, the only federal capital requirement we had for banks was sort of a flat minimum capital requirement. That was it. And when all this stuff happened with that Mexican crisis uh, with uh, Volcker, they went to Basel. And we got Basel one, and then a few decades or a decade or two later. Well, we Basel two. also is the group that tells European banks that there's no risk at all in owning a government security. That's them. 
And so yeah. therefore the government, the banks in Europe have got like 75% of their loan book and in, 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 in bonds issued by right. soon to be bankrupt countries. That's right. That's those guys. Yes. They came up with the rules. Yeah. They do. So and that's why we have it, all the treasuries it, 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 in the banking sector. It's sectors. risk free right. if you're investing in Italian bonds. <laughs> that's right. Or Ukrainian bonds. Sovereign debt is risk free. Isn't well, that there? From it's a credit, credit risk credit standpoint, risk, yeah. it's risk free. However, they missed on the interest <laughs> when rate interest risk. rates go up, <laughs> bond prices go down. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's the critical factor here. And in an inflationary environment, in order to calm inflation you you have to arrest it by increasing the cost of money and that's the only way mm -hmm. to stop it and when you do that you decrease the value of all of those securities and and they can say that they didn't see it coming that's fine but our point would be that if we didn't have these rules every single bank wouldn't look exactly the same every balance sheet wouldn't be so uniform you would have more diversity more in, in the sense of uh more diverse set of assets risk dispersion but you don't. You have siloed balance sheets that look almost exactly the same. Okay, I may want to go into my own wonk world now, but <laughs> the, you're, you're hitting something that's near and dear to me, this notion of measuring risk mm -hmm. and creating stability. And somehow the political class who wants to get reelected thinks they can take risk oh, yeah. out, of the, out of the markets that's and what they make, tell us and every make time. it stable forever. And so when anything bad happens, they try to paper it over to make it stable, stable forever so they'll get reelected. That's what they tell us every time. But in fact, the way markets work is you've got, you've got volatility. And volatility is a good thing because that shows you what's working, what isn't working. Mm -hmm. And as you point out, if, if you've got a basket of banks that are 100 banks and each one of them is run by somebody with a slightly different view of the world, you've got a... Uh, uh, a really interesting uh, set of ideas about what works and what doesn't work. Yep. And that's going to be more stable as people gravitate more towards what works. But if you don't let them experiment, you'll never find out. Yeah. Well, or if you just keep bailing out ones that make bad risk choices. Yeah. yeah. Well, then, the, then we're China. So we I mean, do that's both. That's what China's so doing. <laughs> our system is gravitated in yeah. that exact direction. And I think that's the crux of what we're trying to get to here is the administrative state is 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 bailing out our system you know it used to be once every 20 30 years now it's happened three times in the last 15 years mm -hmm. okay so they said to us in march if we don't backstop all the depositors which included chinese companies chinese nationals who why why it's a systemic risk to bail out those folks i don't know but we bailed out all of the Did depositors. Did you look at the list of depositors that got bailed out at Silicon Valley Bank? Yeah. Number one on the list, I think, was uh, Sequoia. Yeah. They had like a billion dollars there, and Sequoia's got a big operation in China. Mm -hmm. Well, they're closing it now. Uh, well, they're not closing <laughs> it. They're spinning it off. Yeah. It, they're, they're divest, they're, but they're going to keep their equity stake in those deals. But anyway. Could, yeah. that's, well, good luck trying to get the equity out of China. Well, there are capital controls. That's another show. <laughs> that's right. So I, I think, you know, the, w one of the issues is, is why do we have all of this costly regulation, which is in billions every year for all these regulated entities? It creates barriers to entry for, for small banks, for community banks. And now we're told that the only way that this system is going to survive recently by uh, Secretary Yellen is that we need to have more regional bank mergers. And community bank mergers, which More is sense, yeah. consolidate 
everything even more. And then at some point, you'll just have the big Wall Street banks and you'll have a few super, super regional banks. And you don't need rules at that point. Then government can just jawbone as much as they want to. And you have administrators who have not been elected who then choose to implement their own policy objectives through verbal diatribes or letters to the CEOs or to their boards that reprimand them for not doing exactly what they want when there isn't even a regulation or a law that would govern the behavior. And that's that's where we're at right now, is the administrative state has is, is missed the mark on what its job was. It's ventured into climate policy and other things, social policy, cultural policy, and, and now they want to have the ability to consolidate the industry so it's easier for them to implement these policies because they don't want to have to go to Congress. Well, you're making the argument, which I agree with, is that the purpose of, of these regulations ought to be to create an interestingly interesting growth, innovative economy that provides wealth and human flourishing. And the more we have a free, free market of exchange, the more that happens. And as we consolidate, 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 I mean, small banks are the biggest source of credit to, for example, small real estate developers all over the country. That's, uh, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, that's where you want to be. You're not going to be banking with Citibank. And so by consolidating, we're, we're really driving out a lot of the entrepreneurial aspects of it, which hurts growth and hurts flourishing. But if you don't care about that, if you care about redistribution, if you care about climate, you know, innovation be, be, you know, take the hindmost. Yeah. Well, it supports the professional class too, Bill. I mean, who's getting rich here? You know, there's an argument well, that's to be the, made. That's sort of the heart of the matter. <laughs> yeah. Who, who, who's, 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 who benefits? It's the professional class that votes one way. And yeah. those people clamor for regulation. The more detailed the regulation, the more money they make. Their prices have gone from $600 an hour in the 90s to over $2,000. We're talking Wall Street lawyers. For compliance, yeah. accountants, and consultants. It's yeah. ridiculously complicated. And then, you know, you have, that's why when you have the some of these regulators, the SEC, the banking regulators enter into climate or social justice debate, they're, they're forcing some of their regulated entities to go and undertake a racial equity audit or a climate audit. Those things cost anywhere between one and five million dollars for the audit to be conducted. Who's a getting racial that? equity audit? Those are yes. And that's happened to some of you the members American Securities Association is a is the is is a group of mid cap, small cap uh, securities brokers and dealers uh, working with investor dollars and therefore you're seeing all this firsthand. Well we yeah we see it firsthand <clears throat> because we we support public companies and bring them to market. But one of the barriers to coming to market is all of these extra costs that are being levied on shareholders and on management through shareholder proposals, which is an, another thing that the federal government doesn't belong in because corporate governance is, is supposed to be reserved for the states. The corporate enterprise is about state regulation. It's not about federal securities law. The only reason the SEC has a foothold in there is because they decided to intervene in the proxy process, yeah. and they shouldn't be. And if you did that, then what you would do is force all of these companies to choose. Do I want to be incorporated in Delaware or New York or maybe Florida or Texas? Where is going to, where, where is going to be the place where I can go where I won't have to deal with this nonsense that doesn't have anything well, to do with Well, that's the beauty business. of federalism. You've got 50 alternatives as to where you want to be. Yeah, and you can make a case that the securities trading market <laughs> 
that that should be federally governed because it's interstate, right? But you can't say the same thing for the corporate governance of those these companies. It just doesn't make sense. There's no there's no necessary reason there, right? It's, it's not necessary. Um, and, and if you did that, you would empower corporations and their shareholders to move to a place where that was hospitable and wouldn't allow all of this cultural phenomenon that's happening in our country by activist investors to invade the border. But we have a national rule that's a federal rule that has superseded the power that was reserved to the states to govern corporate matters. And you have huge barriers to going public. You have huge barriers to just starting a, a financial company. Um, you have huge barriers in terms of the, the regulatory costs to get there, right? The scale has to be enormous. And you have huge barriers in terms of the way you set that company up. Let you can't just go set it up the way you want. Let me supply some numbers. The number of public companies in the last 25 years has gone from what to what? Well, I think now we're down. It's gone from about 15,000 to 5,000, 4,000. It might be lower. I think it's in uh, below 5,000 now. And in large part, almost entirely, that's because of the regulatory climate, the Dodd-Frank, the, the rules that you've got, all the, all the, all the accommodations you've got to make as a public company. If you want to, if you want to go IPO, you know, you're looking at a stack of documents, you know, that's as high as this room and, 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 the, and the dollars involved are extraordinary. And then once you're public, it adds one or two or three or 4% to your, uh, to your expenses. So you don't want to be public. And then the other thing they did was they killed the trading rules. Remember the penny rule? Oh, yeah. The size, the tick size. Yeah. yeah. Well, it used to be you could make money as a, as a, as a market maker because you had, uh, I don't remember the exact math, but it was, they basically changed the regulations so you could make money making markets in a small cap stock. And so therefore the liquidity dried up and nobody wanted to be public if you're a small company. So that's all gone. Yeah. So investors don't get to participate in uh, in small growth companies because oh. they're not public. And now they're clamoring to go after at least some in the Senate are going clamoring to go after the private equity side too. You know they don't want to. Well, you the do that. SEC stuff bleeding yeah. into the private markets, oh. and then let's do some other numbers: the community banks, the regional banks. Since uh, Dodd Frank, well, the, one, the the law that really killed the small public companies. I think I misspoke. That was Sarbanes Oxley. I think I said Dodd. It was Sar it was Sarbanes Oxley. It was the beginning, real beginning of that end. Yeah. And I was running a public company. Dodd Frank didn't help. Dodd Frank has now added that, but that's mainly yeah. community banks. We used to have 100, 150 started every year because of Dodd Frank. We've had like a half a dozen in the last yeah. uh, 12 years. That's way down. That's way down. No, it's way down. No, it is. It is. I and you know, look, the the my take on the community banks is maybe I'm not arguing with that the fact that they do do a lot of the small business lending. I think that's their niche. But um, on top of that, a lot of the problems that we have are because of this sort of interplay between small banks and big banks. They actually hate the big banks much more than they hate the government. Um, you community development financial institutions (CDFIs). Tons of community banks are CDFIs, meaning that they're getting their capital subsidized by the government. Um, they're almost all part of the federal home loan bank system now, um, which is another regulatory fiasco, really. Uh, the I forget. <laughs> You're with Cato. Yes. And you don't want less government. You want no government. Well, <laughs> I, I'd be okay with a heck of a lot less, Bill. A heck of a lot less. 
Okay, we're this nowhere is a near there, though. You know, we haven't gone that way. I know we're going exactly the wrong direction. <laughs> uh, this is Bill Walden show. I'm here with Norbert Michelle and uh, and uh, Chris Iquivel, and we're talking about the the perils of being a small public company and and community banks. And Norbert is making a point that community banks are a, love the government. And I, I guess again, I'd like a, a, a poll of people listening and watching. If you're have a point of view about this, put some comments on the website or, or Substack, and we'll uh, we'll weigh into that on our next show. That sounds good. Let's shift gears. Okay. Central bank di digital currency. Oh, yeah. What is that? You've done a lot of work on that. Uh, we have. Uh, my colleague Nick, uh, Nick Anthony we, and I, Cato. At Cato, yeah. We've, yeah. Done, we've been at the front of that one, I believe. Um, proud to say <laughs> that's i i would call that sort of the next phase it's coming uh so the the feds doing pilot studies lots and lots of different countries have either introduced um a pilot or some kind of study and close my numbers might be a touch off but somewhere between 10 and 15 company uh, countries rather have actually launched a cbdc china included well first explain what it is it is a I would call it a truly wholly digital form of a national currency. So if we were to use the dollar uh, as, as an example, you know, we already have digital dollars, right? We can use our phones and transfer dollars back and forth out of river bank accounts and Venmo and all that kind of stuff. This digital dollar, the CBDC digital dollar is a little bit different in that big difference actually. Uh, it's a direct liability of the central bank. So this is not a private sector innovation. People will say, oh, it's like the government's version of crypto. Well, that's I see where they're going, but that's not quite right. The whole point of crypto was that it was decentralized, or that you could have a, a decentralized instrument without having a government entity or another private entity verify those transactions. A central bank digital currency is exactly that. It's the intermediary, and the intermediary is the central bank verifying the transactions. So the only transactions you get to make are the ones that they literally get to, that they say are okay. They can put money in the account. They can take money out of the account. They can stop you from buying something. They can penalize you for not buying something. Maybe spending's up, you know, uh, at a slower rate than we would like. We need to boost the economy. So if you don't spend your money, we're going to penalize you. We're going to take it out. These are all things that um, many different government officials throughout the world have openly talked about doing. They want to program your transactions. It sounds Orwellian, and I, we, have, <laughs> we have these things documented on our website. Um, BIS officials, the, these, these guys are saying this. They're doing this right now. No, you you guys have done great work, but but it it's Thank just you. part and parcel to this agenda of eroding the Fourth Amendment <clears throat> and destroying the right of privacy that millions that every American should be allowed to enjoy. The government has decided that it wants to understand everything that we do. It wants to know our securities transactions. It wants to know what we buy, when we buy things, what we hold as a security, what we invest in, what we finance, how much debt we have. Why they need to know all of this is, <coughs> is is an open question, and the debate hasn't happened. All we hear is, we're very concerned about the privacy issues on a central bank digital currency. 
Yes, we hear you. This is the Fed chair says, yes, we hear you. And I am as well. I share those concerns yeah. as well. And then that's it. But they just keep moving forward with basically taking over our financial system in that way. Uh, I, last time I was on your show, I talked about this consolidated audit trail, which, which collects all the, the, <laughs> the trading information of every American investor. What What is this? What's the need for all this except for to understand what you invest in and maybe penalize you for investing in certain things, creating a wealth tax possibly later on. Uh, there, there are lots of ways that the government is undermining our privacy that we've, we've enjoyed since the beginning of the institution of our union. And this, the younger generation seem to be perfectly fine with this. And, and, I think it's because they don't understand the risks associated. But, but, but let's dig in. All these bad things seem to have these obscure names. The Consolidated Audit Trail. What, what exactly is that? This is a, a nefarious database. The cat. That, the cat. Okay, the, the cat. cat that needs okay, to be the killed. cat. All right, let's rename yeah. it. The cat. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This, it's a nefarious database that was created by the SEC to try to understand all of the financial transactions that occur in the stock market by every single investor. The idea behind it was to make sure that the markets couldn't be manipulated and to surveil the, the markets and police them, which that's what a regulator should be doing to make making sure there's no, no problem. But as every regulator tends to do, they overreach. And what they've decided is that's not enough. We need a national database of every American investor's personal and financial information to go along with this database so that if we see any bad behavior, we can just go and look into their account without a warrant, without a subpoena, without contacting the broker dealer. And then we say, well, why do you need this? Well, we need to stop insider trading. We say, well, you brought an average of 100 <laughs> cases every year for the last 10 years. Doesn't seem like you have a problem stopping insider trading, yeah. but we still want the information. So. You know, you have to continue to ask yourself, and and Gens Chair Gensler has doubled down on this, and this is Gary Gensler. Yeah, this is something the Biden administration seems very intent on creating this kind of a database, and possibly marrying it up with IRS databases and others to to figure out the true financial picture of every individual in this country. So, what does this mean? Let's. I have I have a lot of different brokerage accounts. What does this mean for me personally? It means you would have one ide identifier inside of this database that would link you to all of your accounts. And someone who sees that would know exactly what you hold, exactly what your wealth is at that moment in time in, the, in financial assets. And who is the they that would be seeing this? Is this somebody inside the SEC or is it another? SEC, and then there are uh, the self-regulatory organizations which, are, which have been delegated uh, unconstitutionally by the SEC to actually look at this and enforce the rules of the, of the CAT. So, and then 3,000 independent contractors who will be hired to, to monitor this yeah. database, who, who can be corrupted or co-opted just in the same way that you saw at the CFPB, uh, which is a Consumer Federation... Uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. One employee stole over 200,000 accounts. <laughs> And brought them home. <laughs> and what do you do with accounts? Exactly. You know, just I mean, in case. It, just well, <laughs> was that person was that person compromised? 
We, there's an open investigation yeah. in there. You don't know. Did they sell this why information? Why don't we know about and, all, why don't Why don't more people know about this? I guess because they're not watching our show, but maybe. Yeah, we need to expand your reach, Bill. I don't know. No, I, I think the, we I, do, you know, do, we do I think need it's to do the, that. <laughs> I think it's the classic issue, though, where you know if it doesn't really negatively impact anybody at any given point in time, they don't worry about it. When it does, they worry about it. Um, the CBDC, the central bank digital currency, is a great corollary to this on the banking side. Ultimately, it would provide somebody in the government with a database, not just of all your investments, but all of your transactions. If it was fully implemented, mm -hmm. it would be the only way that you can transact. And it would be a centralized database of all your transactions housed within the government so or government this contractor. would also the central bank digital currency would also allow them to monitor my political contributions oh, yeah. Everything. and my charitable contributions and anything that i everything. care to uh, support everything or not and, support or not support yeah that, that's or true. not support and that's the key and oh. and and they will tell you things like oh well, so they're gonna have, have to be that way but the truth is, you, if you want to get all the benefits that they tell you you're going to get with the CBDC, all the programmability, well, then you can't let people do something else. Like, that has to be the primary method of transacting your payments. Because if it's not, you won't do it. You won't use it. And they can't penalize you. And they can't direct you. And they can't program anything. So it has to take over for it to actually be fully implemented the way that they're claiming it would benefit people. And this is all being done. We we have a similar corollary with LLCs. Uh, there's a an, under the auspices of LLC create, is a form of corporation. That's right. And okay. The Private. Is, there's a partnership essentially. They've okay. implemented a rule to try to pierce through and find out who the owners of all of these LLCs are. And there's a case pending in the Fifth Circuit in Texas right now to try to stop that because it would collect all of the information on every individual who owns any LLC interest. And all of this is designed, we're told that it's to stop money laundering. Oh, yeah. And, you know, this pu pull, push and pull between national security and privacy <coughs> has weighed heavily towards the national security side. And at, at some point, the surveillance state is going to have all the information it needs to stop protests if they don't like them, like they did in Canada. In Canada. So uh, if you're buying a ticket to Washington to go to January 6th, you um, won't be. You won't. You know that you're not. You're not going. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, they wanted that to happen. I, well, I won't get into my whole theory on that one. But so this is pervasive if properly implemented. And I'm thinking with with artificial intelligence, you don't need the three thousand independent contractors. Particularly, you mm -hmm. can you can use AI to surveil patterns and um, Surely. you know bring up bring up uh, suspects. Surely. Yeah, but it, and if it was just surveilling trading patterns and market behavior, that's one thing. But that's that might not be what it's used for, Bill, and that's the concern that everybody has. Because once you get the data, what's to stop these the administrative state from its overreach? This the founders would be rolling over in their grave right now if they understood the amount of individual privacy and personal rights that that are being invaded by our government under the auspices of national security. And a lot of the companies, financial companies, are complacent in this, or uh, uh, acquiescent in this. I, I shouldn't say complacent. They're 100% on board. The, the Bank Secrecy Act is the law that's more on the banking side, but it does affect the securities companies as well. Um, it was implemented in 1970. 
you can go back and read the congressional hearings. It sounds just like it sounds today. You know, we need it for security. We need it for money laundering. We need it for tax evasion. And they've changed it and increased the law and regulation, increased the statute require, statutory requirements constantly over the years. And it's the same story every time. And now all we have are millions, millions of reports filed every year by financial institutions where we're talking about convictions that number in the hundreds, if, if, if out of the hundreds, if even into the low thousands. Well, half of those million and, were Hunter Bidens. <laughs> I think that's how they flagged him, actually. It is how they flagged Yeah, him. the uh, it was those, suspicious it was activity those report. It was one of those. It was one yeah. of those, yeah. yeah. So, so there was some value, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, but they but didn't do no, anything no. about it. I no, I'm, I am joking. I am okay. No, right. no, I know. But that's that. That is my my point. Is that that you have all these reports and they're useless, but they create this giant record, electronic <laughs> record of all these things that people who have committed no crime are doing. That's a constitutional violation. That's and, a, at the bare minimum a Fourth Amendment violation. And you couple that with the AI revolution that you're talking about here. Yeah, it's going to be very easy to duplicate somebody's entire identity profile when you understand all their personal information, their financial information, and their transaction history. I can be Bill Walton, and you wouldn't know it because I'm using an AI. It'd be a lot of fun to be me. (laughs) (laughs) But you know the thing about this is, and I, you know, Sarah's here on one of the cameras, is that I, I find I keep financial records. I don't keep much else, but I keep financial records. And it's interesting. You go back and look 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. They tell an incredible story. Oh, yeah. You know, where you were, what you're spending money on, who you, what oh, yeah. you're doing, that sort of thing. I mean, there's there's a whole, you'd almost, it almost, AI could probably write my biography based probably. on my financial records. Probably. I'm it's exaggerating. Probably much, but it's no. probably not much of an exaggeration. It's an incredible violation of privacy. Yeah. And none of the financial institutions will come out against this. Not the Community Bankers Association, not the big banks. Well, you've got your guns leveled at the community bankers, but... All of them. <laughs> <laughs> but why won't they? What's the... Wh- wh- who benefits? I mean, what's the... Why Why are they intimidated? It, they're, I, it's, a, it's a liability issue. Uh, they have a clear set of rules to follow, and if they follow those rules, they're not going to be held liable for a 9-11 terrorist or a drug dealer who set up shop in Tampa or whatever. Wherever. So they don't want to be independent actors. They don't want to be right. thinking that, oh, this is wrong. They're just going to go with the rules and That's they'll right. be okay. That's how they do it. And they have armies of consultants. They've had, they have been required to hire employees to comply with this stuff and to come up with AML programs. Uh, I mean, AML this, is uh, any money laundering program okay, yeah, under yeah. the Bank Secrecy Act. Sorry, I have way too many acronyms. Well, again. we all do. We're all. It's I mean, a, yeah. And then now it's we've two, got two thousand dollars an hour for that. Yeah, yeah. From a yeah. from a, a lawyer or a consultant to help you implement these systems. Mm-hmm. So the money comes from Washington. It's a creation of Washington. It gets implemented throughout the country, and then you have to hire these lawyers who are specialized in it, which are generally in in Washington and New York. And all that money continues to flow there. Those are, dare I say, not red states, not red areas. And though that money continues to flow back into the political system. And I think one thing that we're doing here right now, which is extremely important and is never done in Congress, is we're, we are piecing together all of these intrusions on individual privacy across the financial system. We, we don't 
you know, generally engage in all of the issues that, that Norbert does as it relates to the banking system. But to hear this and the, and the CBDC, and now you have consolidated audit trail, you have the LLC rules. Which is why we do a show like this. Yeah, but if you think about it, this is a complete picture of everything that you are from a financial perspective. And it's, it's going to be in the hands of a government bureaucrat. That well, might have a political you know, the, motivation. The concern, of course, is that you're not only a government bureaucrat, but a government bureaucrat that thinks that uh, anybody voted for Donald Trump is a, is a domestic terrorist. And, you know, they're acting on this. Well, I had, we, had, uh, we did a show with Ben Weingarten, who's an investigative journalist that did a lot of work on CISA. C acronym. C-I-S-A. It's something <laughs> called the something intel uh, cybersecurity and inf intelligence uh, uh, security agency, and it's a part of Homeland Security, and they've been actively charged with monitoring our infrastructure. And they've changed the definition of infrastructure to include, at first, elections. So they had oh. to monitor elections, but now they're monitoring what they call our cognitive infrastructure. Oh, did you know that? No, no, no that was a new see. One this for is me. why, we, and that's good. And the, and the, Jen Easterly, who runs that group, they're they're convening the social media companies to go to say, well, look, we need to monitor certain types of speech, and the speech where they're concerned about are things like. Uh, Obviously, January 6th, obviously the, the 2020 election, but also things you wouldn't think of, like people that don't like the way we handled the withdrawal from Afghanistan hmm. or the conduct of the war in Ukraine, whether that's a good idea or not. And so there's all these issues that people disagree with what the administration is doing. They've defined as uh, um, our, our cognitive infrastructure being damaged or something. I mean, I, it... it, it, it be there have to have been a lot of movies made about this, but now we're living in it. Yeah. Well, it's be it's because of the advent of social media and in generations now, two generations that have grown up thinking that you share everything that you do in your entire life with the rest of the world, and then that's okay. Right. Not, I mean, we. I just read last week that there was a, intelligence agencies were buying up information on Americans. From third-party vendors. From, from, a private, from private companies. From private third-party vendors. What do they need that for? I, it's an open question. I, and I, I'm gonna Norbert, say we're I'm looking gonna to you say they, I'm going to say they, I'm gonna say they don't. I am. I am. I'm going to say they don't. And I, I will not name names, but I've actually had that conversation with a prominent Senate Democrat staff. And when I brought up this, that you don't need it, and that uh, you know, maybe, maybe, I admit, maybe you don't need it. Um, I was sort of told, well, what's the big deal if the government has it, if the government has all this information and that's on the democratic side. So, I mean, this is, it, it, I'm, I'm telling you, it is pervasive. And if you talk to Democrat or Republican offices on the Hill, there's with, with very few exceptions, you would think you're in the same office uh, on the same side. It, you, there's very little distinction. There's an overarching so you security don't, you don't push. see a D versus R divide on this one. Very little. You have a few people on 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 either side that get it and that would maybe do something about it and would say something about it. Um, Congressman Rose actually does have from Tennessee does have a good bill on the Bank Secrecy Act, um, and he's got a sponsor that I believe is Pete Sessions. But you know this. So there are some people, but in general, 
no. I mean, if you could go into Maxine Waters' office, you're going to get the same story that you're going to get from McHenry's office in general. It's not much. It's not going to be much different. So it's, I, it's I, the establishment. I was talking with one of the one of the people who listen and watch the show a lot, and she said, uh, "Can you talk about something positive?" <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's depressing. <laughs> How do we get out of this? We get a few minutes. We get a few minutes left. I mean, is, is there what are we what are we working on that would be a ray of light against all this? Uh, uh... Well, I I feel like uh, we are working on these things that would be a ray of light, and I think like the, we are exactly you know me coming on your show is one thing. To what we're say, doing right here is a ray of yes, light. Yes, it is. We're getting it the is, word out because we're yeah. getting the word out, and yeah. we just need to do more of that. And I think most people will read these sorts of things or hear these sorts of things. They don't know what the Bank Secrecy Act is, but you can explain it in thirty seconds, and people, yeah. most people, my brother, for example, wait a minute, wait, they do what? <laughs> most, you know, so most people don't know about it, but they would understand it. I think uh, what happened in Canada, actually, the trucker protests, they're getting their bank accounts frozen. We had at Cato an enormous bump in interest when that happened. Uh, people were willing to listen to, well, what is the Bank Secrecy Act? How could this happen in America? People didn't realize that the extent of government involvement you know, at that point. So, I mean, I, I'm not going to give up hope that something will change eventually. We just have to keep getting the word out. Well, and the other thing is the economy seems to be percolating along. I mean, you yeah. know, we've got inflation, which is terrible. But on the other hand, and it is unemployment's low, and then we seem to be creating wealth, notwithstanding all this massive overhang of regulatory dead weight. I mean, how do I, you know, it seems like a lot of people That's are doing positive. a lot of things to make things work. I'm, I, for me, that this big, okay, it's like being in California. <laughs> You know, you read about California, you think, God, that thing is going to fall into the ocean. It's terrible, terrible, terrible. And then you go to California, and a lot of parts of it are pretty nice. It looks nice, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got any theories about this? <laughs> Speculate? <laughs> I mean, what do we... Well, I think... Well, ahead, I mean, what do you remember? You, you're, you, I, I love talking, and Cato's got a lot of supporters that are entrepreneurs, so you're, we're kind of kindred spirits. Entrepreneurs seem to prevail against all sorts of bad stuff. And that still seems to be happening. Yep. And I, I think the economy is changing significantly. I think the, the, the great power competition that we're, we are involved in right now with China is causing onshoring. That's going to cause inflation in, in prices. We, we have an industrial policy that was passed last year with the Inflation Reduction Act. We have the, this CHIPS Act. We can debate those policies on another program, but at the end of the day, those are designed to put Americans to work and create more jobs and stimulate specific industries in our country. So I think as the, the economy is evolving from what it was before, which was really technology-driven and bringing down costs related to outsourcing and related to the Im improvements in technology, which is why we, haven't, we didn't have inflation for 15 years. Uh, roughly. So I, I think that gives people an opportunity to see areas that they can offer new services. You had the 3D printing revolution. That's, that came and went, but it, it's not gone. It's still here and it, and it promotes 
jobs and new ideas. You have this AI revolution. It's real. It's being used across every industry. I, I'm not certain yet how it's going to impact the financial industry, but you theoretically could think that instead of uh, doing all of your diligence and your homework using an Excel spreadsheet to trade bonds, you might be able to use a chat GPT product that you input all the information into to help you understand and source and locate where the best bonds are, where the prices are, who's got the best inventory, and what the prices should be based upon different scenarios. And that's an improvement in, in the efficiency of, of, of a marketplace. And I think you're, you're starting to see that all across the system. Whether inflation goes all the way back down and comes back down, I don't know. And whether the U.S. consumer continues to keep spending if food prices, hotels, lodging. I mean, I, you can't get a hotel in D.C. anymore for less than $450 a night. And, and it is, it's absurd. Beginning of this year, it was a, between $150 and $275 a night. Not anymore. Flights have been reduced. Instead of having five flights a day that I used to take from Tampa to D.C., there's two now, direct flights. And the cost of those flights has doubled. So at some point, uh, I, something's going to break. And I don't know what it is or, or this becomes the new norm. And if it becomes the new norm, then I think we have to really reevaluate how, how the economy is going to move forward for the next generations. And, 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 and that change brings opportunity. And, it, and hopefully it will allow the younger generations to come up and say, why is it so hard to start a business? Why are there so many rules? Why do I have to get all these licenses? Why can one bureaucrat who doesn't know anything about what I'm trying to do stop me from making an improvement in this economy? That's, that's ultimately what you need is people to take an, a chance and realize that this administrative state is so out of control that if we could just reduce it and understand that the Fed's going to bail out the economy whenever there's a problem, so let's take away all this red tape and all this excess cost, stop sending it, to lawyers and consultants in Washington and New York, I think that would be a lot more productive for our society. Norbert? Well, I mean, I think I, I like I try to be very careful in and say that I think in general things are pretty good. You know, from a global perspective, from a historical perspective, we certainly have problems, uh, but in, in terms of how well yeah. off are we, you know, relative to the past and relative to other countries, we're much better. We're very, very well off. And I think that things could be a lot better. And I don't disagree with Chris on, you know, on, on more entrepreneurial efforts and, and more productivity and, and less red tape. I think that would be a way that we would make it better, um, make things better for everybody. I think more opportunity is the way to go. And centralizing it through Washington is the way to squash it. So that, that's, that's where I am on these things. Well, uh, I'm afraid we haven't gotten quite that <laughs> bright sunshine of hope yet. We will work on it. It sounds like your scenario, Chris, we're going to need a cataclysm. And then after the dust settles, we'll end up with a, with a more vibrant economic economy. And uh, I don't know. I don't, this is one of these, we're being speculative and uh, yeah. Um, but I do know, and I think if you're watching, listening to the show, the, the message here really is you got to pay attention to everything that's going on and you got to dig a lot further. You got to read that, uh, 
that credit card statement, figuratively speaking, to know what sort of things are percolating here. And Norbert and, and Chris are doing a great job of digging in and, and explicating this stuff. I mean, Norbert, where can, where can we find you? You're at Cato. Cato, Cato.org. Cato.org, email, t- Twitter. Uh, uh, email is nmichelle, M-I-C-H-E-L, at Cato. And I'm on Twitter. I couldn't tell you what my Twitter handle is, but it's I'm on Twitter. <laughs> you seem shocked. Yeah, I don't know. Norbert, I can't tell you what my Twitter handle is. Doc, whatever. Yeah, I don't <laughs> that's know. good. Right. I should change it to that. Actually, that'd be that's a good idea. I think it's a pretty good yeah. idea. You could remember. It I would remember it finally. And Chris, American Securities Association, you get a fabulous website, and you're there. What's your email and Twitter? Oh, Twitter we, and we, Twitter. We just use the American Security at American Securities is our is the Twitter handle. And, okay. Uh, on Facebook, it's American Security Association. I'm not Facebook, LinkedIn. Okay. So you can find us there. AmericanSecurities.org is, is the website. We submit comment letters. We opine on legislation. Uh, we work with everybody. We push back on everybody. And I will say one last ray of hope. There are two really good commissioners at the SEC. One is named Hester Peirce. The other is Mark Ueda. And they are standing up for the privacy rights of individuals, for free, open, fair markets, a reduction in all of this regulation, they see it creating more and more consolidation in the industry, and they do not like the fact that that is the the outcome of all of this extra regulation, and they are raising awareness about that. So I I think there's there's a lot of folks out there that are similarly situated as Hester we are. and Mark are great. So the so the so the parade we want to lead is the private privacy rights. Uh, Parade. I mean, that's sort of cutting across all these issues. Is yeah. We, we, you know, yeah. Leave our leave our leave us alone and leave our information alone. Yes. And you deal with and you fix a lot of it if you just start there. And let sorry. us keep our own private checking accounts. Yes. That that's why. That's why we've made that our priority. Okay. So. Well, keep on it because we're gonna. <laughs> you need to win on that one. Uh, it's been a Bill Walton show, and uh, if you like what you're hearing, and you may not like exactly what you're hearing, but you found the content incredibly useful and interesting, which I hope you did. Please spread the word and uh, whatever platform you're on, please leave your comments uh, and give us a review. A five-star review would be nice. Uh, It makes a difference. And also be sure you subscribe. Uh, We've got a lot of different sort of shows coming out every week. And I think you'd be surprised the range of things we cover. So uh, stay tuned, subscribe, and look forward to uh, sharing uh, new and um excited <laughs> the bright rays of hope for the future <laughs> anyway thanks for joining and uh, we'll see you again soon talk again soon thanks bye i hope you enjoyed the conversation want more click the subscribe button or head over to the billwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes you can also learn more about our guest on our interesting people page and send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.